0: Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Welcome to The Daily Dive, weekend edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week we saw positive signs in the economy as inflation cooled slightly to 7.7% in October. Experts warned not to get too excited as they would like to see more of a trend, but the hope is this could be the peak. Used car prices have dropped along with airfare and apparel, but rents continue to stay elevated. The Fed has signaled it will continue to raise rates until inflation drops more, but in smaller increments. For more on the signs that inflation could be easing, we'll speak to Rachel Siegel, economics reporter at The Washington Post.
3: On the one hand, it is hugely encouraging to see the overall inflation number dip below 8%. It has been a very long time since that happened. But on the other, I don't know, it feels like there was a healthy dose of skepticism or at least patience that came with this report, too. We've heard over and over again from policymakers at the Federal Reserve, other economists that, you know, we need to see months of this kind of report. So on the one hand, it's certainly good news that people hope will continue, but it's going to take a little bit more time for us to know if this is a real new trend.
2: Yeah, the optimism there is really that we're hoping it's peaked you know, if it dropped a little bit and that's the peak, good on that, you know, we'll, we'll deal with that as it, as it starts uh, coming down a little bit more. So let's talk a little bit about where the drops came from and where prices are still going up. Uh, let's start with the drops first. We're looking at places like prices for used cars and trucks, airfares were down, apparel was down a little bit as well.
3: Those are the main categories. Those were enough to really, you know, help bring down Headline inflation too. So yeah, you mentioned used cars and trucks fell 2.4%. Airfare is down 1.1%. Apparel down a little bit less than 1%. In the past, you know, there were some months where there was a drop in inflation, but it was almost all driven by, say, a big drop off in gas prices or something specific that maybe happened that month that therefore didn't carry over into later inflation reports. But used cars, airfares, those are things that tell us where the economy is going. And the hope is that we'll continue to see more of that spread into more categories over more time.
2: Yeah, I mean, and leading up into the holiday season, all we were hearing was buy your tickets now or, you know, it's mm-hmm. uh, airfares are, are super expensive right now. So good to see a slight drop. <laughs> I mean, like I said, mm-hmm. these are so slight numbers, uh, you know, it's hard to tell how much of a big impact it could make. We are still seeing food prices go up a little bit, which is not very good. And rents, uh, the price of shelter still continues to be high right now.
3: Yeah, and housing and and all the different ways in which housing costs are calculated makes up a very, very large share of the consumer price index, which is the name for this specific report. Overall, in the whole economy, we've seen the housing market cool off. Mortgage rates have gotten very high as the Federal Reserve raises its interest rates. But we haven't quite seen that kind of slowdown hit the rental market yet. And that is something that economic policymakers at the Federal Reserve and in the White House are very fixated on because not only is that a key driver for how overall inflation goes. But it's something that people feel day to day. They know what their rent costs. They know what it costs to be looking for a new apartment. And as far as the basics, that one has always to come down.
2: Yeah. I mean, in the housing, you know, for people trying to buy a home, we've seen that cool down significantly as the interest rates keep going up. I think it was over 7% for October as well. So, I mean, when a year ago, it was at 3%, uh, just slightly Mm -hmm. above 3%. So, I mean, the, the mortgage rates are killing people right now. Taking a lot of people out of their housing hunt, really.
3: Yeah, exactly. And in some ways, that is what the Fed is hoping to do. It hopes that as it raises its interest rates, that that will cause a slowdown in economic activity elsewhere. It hopes that buyers might bow out of the market because they don't want to spend a couple of hundred extra dollars on a mortgage payment. You know, they want maybe construction to slow down or for people just to say, "Okay, I'm going to set this part of the economy out. And that obviously has ripple effects through designers and tile manufacturers and construction jobs the problem is or at least what we understand it to be is that housing is particularly sensitive to interest rate hikes you know mortgage rates have a very direct correlation to what the Fed does there aren't quite lines that are that easy to draw in other parts of the economy but again the hope is that this inflation report will be repeated so that we start to see more progress over time.
2: And let's talk a little bit about what the Fed is doing, raising those interest rates. That's all cooling down the demand for, you know, everything. You kind of laid out a a bunch of things, right? Uh, Less houses, less, uh, you know, tile people, you know, less designers, all that stuff. Everything starts cooling down a little bit. And that's kind of the overall thing that part of that is the concern, if it could push us into a recession, all that. But right now we've been seeing three quarter percent rate hikes. The Fed has signaled they are probably still do them, but they're going to reduce it at least to a half of a percentage point now.
3: That is our best guess. So the Fed has one more policy meeting before the end of the year that will take place in December. And then we know that there are probably going to be more interest rate hikes of smaller scales early next year. Last week, when the Federal Reserve raised interest rates at its November meeting, the message was very clear that officials are a very, very long way away from feeling comfortable stopping altogether. But they did open the door towards slowing down the scale of rate increases or the size of the individual rate increase. And as time has passed, I think it's fair to say that what matters a little bit less is the specific size of the rate increase, say, you know, half a percentage point versus three quarters of a percentage point. The goal was just for the Fed to really speed up and get rates high enough that they were going to be able to finally be able to slow down the economy. And now that we're there, the Fed might be a little bit more comfortable with a slightly smaller hike, but that sends a similar message.
2: And fears of a recession, how are we doing on that front?
3: Well, that's really the million dollar question that a lot of us are so focused on, because There are a lot of reasons to think we are not in a recession right now. The job market is probably the main reason behind that. The job market has remained remarkably resilient to rising interest rates, fear of a recession. Employers are still really eager to hire. But at the same time, the Fed has just had to come back swinging so hard in order to get inflation down. And those moves don't all hit the economy all at once. They happen with a lag. And the growing fear among some economists, but also many Democrats in Congress, is that That is all going to sort of hit with a thud next year, and that that is going to be what pulls us down into a recession.
2: Rachel Siegel, economics reporter at The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: This week, Meta also joined the latest string of big tech companies to announce layoffs and hiring freezes. The parent company of Facebook said they will be cutting 13% of their workforce, about 11,000 employees. Revenue has been down for Meta as they faced increased pressure from competitors like TikTok. Meta will also start prioritizing content from viral creators over posts from friends and family. For more on what to know, we'll speak to Naomi Nix, tech reporter at The Washington Post.
4: Basically, you know, what Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Meta, said today is, you know, the company is experiencing a laundry list of threats to its business model. Um, like you mentioned, there is growing competition for advertising dollars and users from rival platforms like TikTok and Snapchat. Additionally, the company, you know, has faced some difficulties in terms of being able to provide targeted advertising because Apple recently introduced new privacy rules that limited the way app makers like Facebook could collect data on their users and then pass it on to advertisers. Additionally, you know, the e-commerce boon that, you know, many retailers and internet platforms experienced during the pandemic has essentially leveled off. And, you know, Mark essentially said, you know, I overestimated our fortunes and we had to make this difficult decision.
2: Now, uh, as far as exit compensation for these workers, they're going to get 16 weeks of base pay, two additional weeks for every year they worked. That's kind of nice, I guess. Um, They're going to cover their healthcare costs for about six months. But this is also coming on the heels of what they're trying to do with the metaverse as well. I mean, they put a ton of resources into that. They've still got a lot of resources there, and other tech companies also are are kind of scaling back their workforce, but they were in a hiring boom right up until this all happened. Uh, But the metaverse, again, like I said, just a huge thing that they're putting a lot of resources into.
4: You know, Mark Zuckerberg has said he thinks that uh, the metaverse and the virtual reality powered services will become the next great computing platform after mobile for and eventually replace some in-person communication. And so the company is spending billions building out these immersive digital worlds. And even just, you know, last quarter, uh, the company said they expect to lose even more money from the division that's largely overseeing those efforts in the next year. So I wouldn't read You know, the layoffs today as an admission that Mark Zuckerberg wants to make a drastically different strategy for the company and more, you know, this is the the sort of short-term cuts that they're making to survive the economic uncertainty that currently persists.
2: You know, we were talking a little bit about TikTok and, uh, you know, some of the marketing dollars of uh, the revenue that's not coming in to Meta because, uh, you know, other people are, are moving over to TikTok. They're also saying, saying that the experience might be changing on places like Facebook where you won't be getting a lot of posts necessarily from friends and family. They're going to maybe start pushing up viral content creators uh, similar to the TikTok algorithm. So even the experience of their products could soon be changing.
4: So right now, um, you know, what Marcus said and other executives have said is that the company is you know, refocusing its remaining workers on its top priorities. So one of those priorities, as you mentioned, is to essentially mimic the strategy of TikTok, which is to elevate viral and popular content from creators and strangers over posts, you know, that your friends and family are making. So earlier this year, the company announced it would be creating two newsfeed tabs. The default tab would be this sort of discovery engine of content you might like, even if it's coming from someone you don't know. And then you could click over to a sort of friends and family tab and see the kind of posts that you're used to from the groups and pages that you've liked, from your your high school buddies to your family to your friends. Um, And so that's just one way the company is is trying to mimic TikTok. They're also investing in a short form uh, video product, which, you know, obviously TikTok is known for. And, you know, they're heavily elevating that as well, as well as doing some investments in kind of the advertising business and and sort of new advertising models in its messaging platforms.
2: Naomi Nix, tech reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA.
1: He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs)
0: presented by Verizon coming in May live on NFL Network ESPN2 and streaming on NFL Plus terms and conditions apply to NFL Plus visit nflcom release to learn more
2: Finally for this week Americans went on a fast furniture buying spree during the pandemic and very soon it could all be going in the trash Fast furniture is mass produced and relatively inexpensive think of something you might find at IKEA or Wayfair each year, we throw out more than 12 million tons of furniture, and some of the materials in fast furniture just don't break down or buy or degrade. Its next stop is the landfill. For more on what to know, we'll speak to Deborah Kamen, contributor to the New York Times.
1: A lot of people think of fast furniture as only coming from stores like Ikea or Wayfair or Amazon. You think of the stuff that comes in the flat pack and you've got to put it together, you know, with the instructions that don't have any words. And that is all true. But according to some environmentalists, even the nicer stuff that some of us consider pretty expensive, like Crate and Barrel or CD2 or West Elm even, are considered fast furniture because of the environmental impact of the way it's manufactured. It's made in a factory, mass produced, so a lot of carbon emissions, a lot of waste, they also call that fast furniture.
2: Yeah, as I mentioned, that five-year thing, You know, some of this stuff they say, you know, it's not going to last that long and we're looking for sturdier pieces, maybe they can last a decade or longer. That's the more sustainable stuff. It's just gonna not going to be thrown away as easily. So what's the worry now? Obviously, it's going to clog up landfills. Uh, and you, as you mentioned, the process behind making them obviously is wasteful too.
1: Right. So we're buying a ton more furniture, and the furniture we're buying is not made as well. It's made from materials that don't break down. And in essence, because we're putting it together in our homes, it doesn't last as long. So as it falls apart, what do you do with it? You throw it away. You're not going to take a lac table from Ikea and sell it on Craigslist for 20 bucks. It's not worth your time i mean you walk around the streets of new york city at the end of the month you see furniture on the curb everywhere that stuff ends up in landfills and it's 450 percent more than it has been a couple of decades ago we are throwing away so much furniture a lot of americans don't realize that the way that we furnish our homes now is having a huge impact on the environment
2: each year americans are throwing out more than 12 million tons of furniture And the e-commerce furniture market is worth $27 billion. This is from 2021. You know, a lot of people don't obviously look into how the stuff's made and, you know, the after effects, but people love this. The fast fashion stuff, you know, is a comparable thing that a lot of people point to. But the fast furniture stuff, I mean, it lets a lot of people really design their homes, furnish their homes at a really good price point. And obviously, that's what a lot of people are looking into.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's actually a key issue here. And I really wanted to emphasize this in the story that I wrote. This is not anybody's fault. And you shouldn't feel bad if you have fast furniture in your home. I have a Wayfair desk that I sit at that I wrote this article at. The problem is that furniture, the way it's manufactured now, it's so expensive to buy the good stuff that most people just can't. And we also move so frequently in our lives that it doesn't make sense to buy a $10,000 couch for most of us if we're going to have to move from our apartment in six months. So we're all kind of trapped in this cycle where we have no choice except to buy stuff that is really not good for the environment.
2: Even throughout the pandemic, a lot of people who were making some of those purchases know the pains uh, of trying to get furniture, right? Some of this stuff was, uh, you know, say, hey, uh, I want to buy a couch. Well, it's going to be seven, eight months maybe. And so the fast furniture category really filled that hole. You know, you maybe take you a couple weeks still or a few weeks to get something, but at least you can get something that you needed immediately. And and even with people that landlords and stuff, people with uh, short-term rentals, all that stuff really look to this category to fill their stuff.
1: Yeah, there are other options on the market. Increasingly, a lot of new companies are being founded that are trying to solve this problem and also fill the gap. So there's lots of new options to purchase furniture secondhand or to refurbish it. And I would really encourage people if they are concerned about fast furniture, but don't want to drop 10K on a couch to look into those options in these new companies where you can buy things that maybe are gently used, but are still in really good condition. And the best thing about them is they're in stock. They don't have to be manufactured when you buy them.
2: Yeah, let's focus a little bit more on those. So uh, two that you mentioned in the article, one is Kayo, and they're a marketplace Mm -hmm. for pre-owned furniture. They said they kept more than 3.5 million pounds of furniture out of refills. And another one is Furnish. So this is a rental subscription service.
1: Yeah, it's actually it's more like a rent to buy. So you can rent furniture. But if at any point you think, wow, I really love this, instead of paying, you know, $10 or $12 a month for the lamp or the chair, you can just pay out the rest at the end. But if you're locked in a six month lease and you don't know if you're going to renew, it's a good option to buy furniture that maybe is slightly higher quality without having to pay the full price because you're not going to be able to use it for an extended period of time.
2: What have some of these companies said for their part, at least uh, what they're trying to change, how they're trying uh, maybe not to contribute to a lot of waste? Uh, I know you spoke to uh, Wayfair and IKEA and got some types of statements from them.
1: Yeah, so Wayfair and IKEA, both, they are aware of the environmental impact of the work that they do, and they are making efforts to become more sustainable. And I want to say those efforts really are admirable. IKEA has a huge sustainability pledge. They're trying to make sure that they become carbon neutral by 2030. Wafer also has a lot of sustainability initiatives on their website. They're trying to use better materials and cut carbon emissions. The bigger problem is the fact that we are all refurnishing our homes every time we move. So even if you are using more sustainable practices, there's still a lot of waste every time you throw out furniture because furniture is not a a product that is very easy to resell. And that's why these other companies like Kayo and Furnish are stepping into that middle ground. So if you have a piece of furniture that you don't want to use anymore, there's an option for putting it into the circulation for someone else that doesn't involve just leaving it on the curb.
2: You spoke to a few people that either out of necessity had to go with the fast furniture stuff, or there was also a homeowner that you spoke to that changed his mind about it and and actually learned Mm -hmm. how to make furniture so that he can furnish his his old uh, classic house. Uh, how, How did those conversations go?
1: Yeah, this was a fun piece to report because I talked to a lot of different people about all these different ways that they're living and how furniture kind of emphasizes their choices. But this one guy, Doug Green, he bought a 200-year-old house and he renovated it. And then he just decided, I spent so much time making the walls and the floors of these rooms beautiful, I don't want to buy cheap furniture to put inside of it. So he actually taught himself how to make his own furniture. So he built his own bed and he built his own table and he and his girlfriend made this into a, a project. This is obviously an extreme example, but I thought it was a very interesting take on someone saying, I don't want to have materials in my home that don't match the quality of the home itself.
2: If we're in that category and we're looking at good price points, is there something that consumers should be looking at to at least help with this?
1: Yeah. I mean, you can when you're looking to purchase furniture, first of all, one thing you can do is you can check online reviews, especially if you're buying something that's mass produced. So you can find out from those reviews how long these products tend to last and be durable. And if a lot of reviews are saying this piece broke after a year or this, really didn't, this bunk bed didn't hold up to my kids jumping on it or whatever it's probably not a good idea to buy that product because chances are it's also not going to last for you and you're going to end up throwing it out. The other thing is you can try to find products that are made from solid materials as opposed to manufactured materials. The price point might be a little bit higher, but at least you know that you're purchasing something that when it's being manufactured, the production is slightly more sustainable than it would be if it were something like plywood or manufactured wood. And the best thing you can always do is try to shop secondhand. Try to shop by nothing. Try to, you know... Purchase items that are already in circulation and don't have to be created new. And that's that's a sustainability rule for everything. For the clothes that we wear, right. we should all be trying to buy less and reuse more because climate change is real.
2: Deborah Kamen, contributor to the New York Times, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, it was fun.
2: That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.